Hello, everyone. This is Volts for January 18th, 2023. An energy provider attempts to achieve 24-7 clean energy. I'm your host, David Roberts. Back in November of 2021, I did a series of stories and podcasts on the hottest new trend in clean energy, attempting to achieve not just 100% clean energy, but 24-7 clean energy, i.e. clean energy at every hour of every day. For reasons explained at length in those pieces, 24-7 is a much more difficult goal. Offsetting 100% of your energy use with clean energy mainly involves buying bulk wind and solar wherever and whenever they are cheapest. But matching your energy use with clean energy on an hourly basis means finding sources that can cover for wind and solar when they are not available. Some big corporate players like Google have taken the first steps down this road, but the first utility to attempt it, as far as I know, is Peninsula Clean Energy, a Bay Area community choice aggregator that serves all 20 of the cities and towns in San Mateo County, as well as the city of Los Banos. In December 2021, the utility issued a white paper on the need for 24-7 clean energy, its rationale for pursuing 24-7 by 2025, and the steps it intended to take to get there. Earlier this month, it issued a follow-up white paper reporting on the tool it built to map out 24-7 and the lessons learned. I am fascinated by the practical challenges of getting to 24-7, so I'm excited today to talk to Jan Pepper, CEO of Peninsula and lead author on the latest white paper about why they are setting out to achieve 24-7, the main barriers, and the ways it may get easier in the future. So, without any further ado, Jan Pepper, welcome to Volts. Thank you so much for coming. Well, thank you again for having me here today. It's really fun to be on your podcast. I have so many questions for you. (laughs) I'm so geeked about this. So, I think Volts listeners, you know, loyal Volts listeners will be familiar with the distinction between 100% clean energy and 24-7 clean energy and will be consequently aware of just how difficult 24-7 is relative to 100% clean energy. So maybe let's just start with what is Peninsula? How big is it? How much energy are we talking about? And what is it about Peninsula that enables or, or brought it around to adopting this goal. This is something I don't think any investor-owned utility would do since they are sort of under a legal obligation to maximize revenue at all times. So just tell us a little bit about Peninsula and how you came around to this. Peninsula Clean Energy started in 2016. We're a community choice aggregation agency, which means that we are a not-for-profit public agency serving the communities that voted to be a part of us which started a while ago when California restructured its electricity industry. Um, There was a bill passed in early 2000s that allowed communities to choose to aggregate their own electrical load. Right. And this basically means defecting from PG&E, more or less. So you you procure energy for these people rather than PG&E procuring it. That's right. We are the generation provider. We procure the electricity. PG&E still delivers the power over their poles and wires. They still send out the bill. But we are we select what the generation mix is going to be. 
So our customers have more say. So back in 2016, when we started, we decided that we would be 100% renewable by 2025. And in 2017, we decided that we would be 100% renewable on a 24-7 basis by 2025 in order to greatly reduce our demand signal for fossil fuels from the grid. Um, When we started, we were 50% renewable. And at this point, we're 50% renewable, 100% clean. For our 310,000 customer accounts, which serves about 810,000 people in San Mateo County, all the cities and towns, as you noted, as well as the city of Los Banos in Merced County, where we're hoping to further expand in the Central Valley. Our overall electric load is about 3,600 gigawatt hours per year. Mm, pretty big. Yeah, it's pretty big. Um, <laughs> and due to the the requirements that we have in the state of California for reporting, we report on an annual basis um, how much renewables we procure, how much clean energy we procure, and it's on an annual basis. So our load is 3,600 gigawatt hours. We procure you know, 50% renewable, so we procure 1,800 gigawatt hours over the course of the year, and uh, the rest of it clean energy, which is essentially large hydro to be 100% clean. But that's on an annual basis as opposed to an hourly basis. Before we get past the, the part about the <laughs> peninsula itself, I don't know a ton about how CCAs run. So is this the kind of thing where the membership have a kind of vote or something? Or, or, or once the CCA is established, do you all just have sort of autonomy to set your own policy? How does that work? Oh, that's a great question. So as I say, we're a public agency. So each of the jurisdictions that voted to be a part of Peninsula Clean Energy have a seat on our board. Mm. So we essentially have a 23-member board that consists of an elected council member from each of the 20 cities and towns in San Mateo County, a member from the City Council of Los Banos as well, and two of the county supervisors. So I have 23 bosses that I report (laughs) to, (laughs) and we have public meetings every month uh, for our board fourth Thursday of the month at 6.30 p.m., and everyone is invited to attend. (laughs) And we, as the staff, put together, you know, what we recommend being the professionals who work in the energy industry, and then we bring it to our board. They ask questions, they ponder it, and they typically like what we bring forward, and they go ahead and say, yeah, go do it. So you proposed this 24-7 idea to the board, and they approved it? Yes. Got it. Got it. So... I want to start, in the spirit of this very geeky podcast, with the procurement tool you designed to do this. So you you, you set out to get 24-7 clean energy, and that's extremely complicated, you know, relative to sort of buying a year's worth of renewable energy, you know, balancing on an hour-to-hour basis is very complicated, and you need probably new tools to figure out how to do it. So just tell us a little bit about this procurement tool you built? So we built this model that we're calling the MATCH model, which stands for matching around the clock hourly energy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Cleverly done. Which was uh, an outgrowth of another model called the switch model. And actually we have posted this. This is a open source software now that is available on GitHub. Mm -hmm. Uh, So anyone can find the model and uh, play with it. Mm -hmm. 
And yeah, so we modified the model so that it would reflect the circumstances that we we have as a community choice aggregator for how we procure electricity. Basically, we do not own any generation resources at this time. We contract for everything. So we look at contracted prices. We look at the generation profile for the different kinds of resources that we are putting into our mix. Um, the, the hourly data for those resources, our hourly load data. We look at the locational marginal prices, mm-hmm. also known as LMPs, in the California market. So every node where a generation uh, resource inputs into the market, every node has a different price. We look at weather and things like that. So all of those things are uh, part of the model. So you feed all this data into the model and the model spits back, here is the lowest cost way for you to get to 24-7, basically. That's the idea. Right. As far as you're aware, is that the first tool? I mean, for a specific utility area or for a specific uh, sort of bounded area, you were, did you look around for existing tools or was it, was this something you had to do yourself? Uh, yeah, we looked around for existing tools, and this the switch model was the best one we could find as a start. And then uh, we had Greg Miller, who was a, a PhD student at UC Davis, who was looking at these issues as part of his thesis work, come work for us as an intern. And he did a lot of the work, starting with the switch model and then kind of converting it into what we're calling the match model. Oh, fun. So... You know, I think uh, people who understand the theory behind 24-7, I think the first question that comes to mind for me is, you know, you can buy a bunch of cheap solar power. You're, you're in California, so you can buy a bunch of cheap solar power. You buy a bunch of cheap wind, and that, I imagine, it's just relatively easy to cover those hours when, you know, the sun is out <laughs> and the wind is blowing, but they're not always blowing. So I wonder what, in terms of, both kind of hours of the day and times of the year, what are the hardest times to cover? What are the sort of gaps where you found yourself kind of scratching your head? Like, how are we going to, how are we going to cover this bit? Yeah, actually the results are really interesting. So we will be utilizing a lot of energy storage and in the summertime in particular, there's a lot of excess solar being generated. So we will charge the storage from the solar in the summer afternoons and then discharge that storage back into the grid in the evening hours when the sun goes down. One of the interesting things is, yeah, you can add more and more solar, but the solar doesn't produce as much in the winter time. So the solar can charge up some of your storage in the winter. But what we found is that the hours that are the most difficult to serve are actually the winter nighttime hours. Mm. So um, it's kind of an interesting discovery, and that's that's really the challenge. So so what we've agreed to do as an organization is that we're going to be 100% renewable, and our target is to match 99% of the hours on an hourly basis, because what we found is to do that last 1% requires us to procure about 50% more additional renewables <laughs> because of the difficulty of serving those uh, nighttime hours in the wintertime. You know, it's interested in that because this is a familiar feature of all these models, you know, that's trying to show decarbonization is always the last few percent 
are the trickiest and most expensive to cover. I was actually surprised that you got to 99 relatively smoothly. I sort of like just intuitively based on my priors would have thought that would kick in, you know, a little earlier, like 95% or 96%. But so you can get to 99% coverage relatively cost effectively. We're going to discuss costs later. So, but this is all about in the end, balancing out wind and solar energy. It's all about finding those other sources that can fill the gaps in solar and energy. And I'm sort of curious, like what you found available for that role, what you thought is cheapest for that role and sort of uh, um, what you found to sort of be not quite market ready that you, <laughs> that you think might play that role later down the road. Yeah, so right now, as you note, um, solar is the least expensive resource, and there's a lot of that available in California. There's also some wind, uh, both in California and out of state. There's um, some geothermal, mm -hmm. and um, so those are the, the main resources that we're looking at. Down the road, we're definitely interested in offshore wind. Recently, there was a sale for leases for developing offshore wind off the coast of California that happened what a few months ago. But that technology and those those resources aren't going to be ready by 2025 when we have our goal. So we're also looking at uh, contracting for some shorter term renewable resources, still wind and solar, but under shorter term contracts that we can, you know, use as a bridge until the offshore wind is available at the end of the decade. The storage in your model, is that all lithium-ion batteries, or did you find any sort of market-viable longer-term storage out there? Yeah, that's another thing that we're looking for for the future. Right now, the contracts that we have for storage are for with lithium-ion technology, mm -hmm. lithium-ion batteries, but we are very interested in other types of technologies that are better environmentally. We're also looking at long duration storage. We do have one contract for a portion of a long duration storage project, which is an eight hour storage project, which is lithium ion. But we are looking at some other technologies and are considering some projects right now that use other technologies. Yeah, it's interesting. I know California, the state has run some programs trying to sort of juice the development of some of those longer forms like flow batteries and such. I just didn't know if any of them were kind of on the market yet. Um, we would love to see those. We haven't <laughs> seen a lot of uh, offers yet for flow batteries. There's also compressed air energy storage. There's also pumped hydro. So there's other technologies out there. There's also some gravity storage projects. So all of these look really interesting to us. And we would love to be able to pilot new technologies because part of what we're about is innovation. And I didn't note that at the beginning, you know, San Mateo County, we're kind of in the middle here of Silicon Valley. Our board members who are elected council members are also luminaries in their own fields. A number of them have been involved in new technologies and other kinds of new things coming out of Silicon Valley. So we're really interested in helping new technologies move along. We're really interested in being a test site for companies that want to try out their new technologies. But you don't own these things. So when you say you're trying to stimulate innovation, you're just sort of offering yourself as a first off taker for some of these things when they are developed? Yeah. 
as you know, we're, we're not yet buying any of these technologies, but if it, someone's looking for a site to test their technology, if they're you know, early on in their development and want to see how something's operating, we're interested in working with them. So I just want to kind of uh, pause and put an exclamation point on this, which is that you are getting to 99% 24-7 clean energy with just wind, solar, geothermal, and batteries. Basically, more or less. So I just because you know people, I think have it in their heads that you can't do this without a lot of future tech that's not on the market yet. And so it's just worth you know noting that like you're doing this with stuff that's around today. Yes, there's a little bit of small hydro in there too, but very you know right. very small percent. Yeah. So talk about the role of excess supply, which I think is is a big part of how you get there using only existing tech. Right. So what we found in our modeling is that in order to meet that 99% matching, we do need to procure more than what we we need. A lot of it is because of the winter needs Mm -hmm. that if you're relying on solar, solar doesn't produce as much in the winter. So we've got to have a certain amount of solar available in the winter, which ends up having us be quite over-procured in the summer for the solar. And we are hopeful that as other entities look at what we've done and you know make the plunge themselves, that we can partner up with other load-serving entities like ourselves who may have a larger summer load where we can provide some of that excess solar Maybe they have a smaller winter load and can help us out. So there might be some synergies there. Mm-hmm. But as, as we put more load together and more resources together, my expectation is that the amount of over-procurement might be able to be reduced a bit. Yeah, I was sort of wondering why you can't just kind of sell that to your neighbors if you find you don't need it. Is it more complicated well, than that? Yeah, well, we are um, hopeful that we can sell some of the excess to other entities, to other states, you know, to other CCAs like us or utility companies. And part of our modeling is that, yeah, we will have uh, a bit of excess renewables. So our model assumes that, well, there's a lot of things going on, but um, <laughs> in our conservative economic case scenario, we assume that we're able to sell back 75% of our excess renewables mm-hmm. and 75% of our excess resource adequacy, which is a capacity product. Right. And that helps the economics. But we also find that if we aren't able to sell any of it, it's still not that much more costly than just doing the business as usual approach that we're taking right now. Right. It's a little wild. I think a little bit counterintuitive for people, but you know, rather than buying more batteries or more of these sort of exotic other technologies, wind and solar are so cheap. It's often the cheapest option just to buy, just to buy by the bucket load and buy much more than you need. So you're kind of covering these edge, edge cases. Right. It's just a sort of like testament to how cheap wind and solar have gotten. Yeah. I mean, another thing with that is, and maybe we'll get into this later, but by having excess, we're helping to further clean up the grid. So we may not be using it, but someone else is going to use it. Mm -hmm. And by putting that excess solar into the grid, then other fossil-based resources don't need to be running during those hours. So it Mm -hmm. helps to start overall reducing grid emissions. 
this is sort of a big topic, but I'm curious in anything you have to say about it. The model is for doing this in the year 2025, which is, you know, just a few years away, <laughs> not that far out. And there's a lot kind of going on in the world today that sort of makes this even more difficult, maybe relative to sort of an average baseline. You've got the, the Ukraine war and supply chain, uh, this and that, and, and, and lingering uh, effects of COVID and on and on. So you're doing this in 2025 in some fairly inclement circumstances. So I wonder how and whether you think this procuring 24-7 is going to get easier over time? Like, what are the factors that you think are going to make this easier and bring down the cost? Or do you think it's going to get easier and the cost is going to come down? Yeah, I think the costs are going to come down. We used a couple of different market scenarios because when we first started looking at this, you know, it was in, we've been, we've been modeling this for a couple of years now. And, you know, at the end of 2021, Market prices were coming down. You know, we're looking at a, re, a lowering cost curve for energy storage, mm -hmm. and um, things were great. But then in 2022, mm -hmm. things changed. As you noted, the war in Ukraine, supply chain disruptions. There's um, some uncertainty about these solar tariffs. Mm, Interest right. rates started going up. Commodity prices for lots of things went up. Inflation went up. Ugh. So we had two different market condition scenarios. One we called the optimistic case, which reflected the market conditions at the end of 2021 before everything changed. And then we have our conservative case, which reflects really where the market was mid-2022 before the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, which should be helpful in bringing some costs down. So our analysis and our conclusions are based on that conservative case where things are were not so great or and continue to not yet be so great. But even under those conditions, our modeling shows that the cost of implementing this is maybe 2% more than the path we're taking right now. So that's very, very promising. Yeah, so a 2% bump in price and costs is not the worst case scenario, but let's say a conservative scenario. Yeah, using market conditions as they are today. And if market conditions improve, then that would improve as well. Because when we looked at it on our optimistic case, it actually looked like it could even be less expensive than now. Mm -hmm. that's, that's interesting. So one thing that could make this easier and cheaper is just the market settling down <laughs> and the global economy settling down who knows who knows if that will happen but presumably things won't stay quite this crazy forever that's kind of the the market question but what about in terms of technologies that you think will make this easier and cheaper are there particular kinds of technology that you are you have a particularly close eye on uh well one that i noted was offshore wind and in the report, you mentioned demand side stuff, which I, you know, and I have tons of questions about. Like, I would, again, just based on my priors, I would think that demand side resources would be cheap and available already, but you don't actually include a lot of them in the in this. Yeah, we don't include a lot of them in this because they aren't really that prevalent at this point in time. Mm -hmm. So when we look at think about demand side resources, one could be all of that battery capacity in those electric vehicles that people are buying. Yes. And certainly when we look at, you know, trying to serve those 
difficult to serve nighttime hours in the winter, those EVs, um, having those be available to feed energy into uh, the grid would be great. But right now, we're still kind of waiting. You know, the, the transition is just happening now that car manufacturers are building cars that allow you to draw energy from the batteries. And, you know, the infrastructure to have those available is just starting up. Certainly, the number of EVs that are coming on the market is expanding. And here in San Mateo County, I think we saw that last year, 50% of car sales were EVs. <laughs> so that's awesome. Crazy. And, um, you know, we're excited about that because having this clean electricity, we want that to be used for cleaning up transportation and cleaning up buildings as well. But aren't there some demand kind of aggregators? Like I know FERC kind of opened things up to demand aggregators a few years ago. Are there none of those kind of operating on a, on a even without EVs, you know, just demand aggregators that move around demand for, you know, whatever hot water heating and, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Are, are, are none of those around at, at a sufficient maturity? There are demand aggregators and there is definitely more focus on that in the market. But when we were looking at our overall load, the contribution that they can make to what we're trying to do in the near term is relatively small. Hmm. And it's just, it's still a pretty, I guess I would call it an immature market that we can't count on a significant number of megawatts coming from those resources at this point. Certainly, we hope that that's going to change. We expect that that's going to change. And if we look at years farther out, then demand-side resources definitely would have a larger place to play in this. And I meant to ask this earlier, but I'm just curious, because in any energy conversation, this will come up or uh, someone will yell at me for not bringing it up. Do you count nuclear power as among your clean energy sources? Uh, we do not. Um, when we provide clean energy to our customers right now, we get that all from large hydro. Mm-hmm. Nuclear is considered greenhouse gas free, but our board made the um, decision not to include nuclear as part of our organization's portfolio mix. Got it. So obviously for any given entity going to 24-7 hugely depends on kind of your circumstances, right? Your geographical, you know, in part economic and in part probably socio-cultural, but also just geography, and, and sort of the available energy sources. So I just wonder um, whether you have any thoughts about whether, I mean, you're in, a, you're in a very kind of specific, I mean, you're in California, which is fairly specific, and then you're in kind of Silicon Valley, which is culturally, I think, fairly specific. And then you're also in kind of a specific microclimate within California, you know, which sort of dictates your demand profile. And so I just wonder, like, what you've learned from doing this, how transferable do you think these lessons are to, say, other CCAs or other utilities in other parts of the country? I think it's pretty transferable. I mean, we are, every utility, every CCA is unique and their, their load profile is unique. And we are actually a winter peaking because the weather here is rather mild, and so, or it has been up till a few years ago, so the <laughs> summers haven't been as hot, so there's not as much air conditioning load. So others that ha may have a higher summer peak load, you know, you can use the model, put your inputs in as to what your 
resources are that are available, what your load looks like, and see what comes out and see what where that kind of leads your organization to go. Yeah, I guess I would just sort of suspect that it would be more expensive in other places. Like I kind of almost think you're in the sweet spot in the country to do this. You know, you're sort of surrounded by a state that has a lot of solar going and a lot of hydro. I'm just sort of guessing that it'd be more expensive in other places. But I guess you know, these things aren't always intuitive as we've as we've discovered. So Yeah. One of the things that we looked at was kind of the risk risk premium for different types of um, portfolios. And actually, when you have more renewables, your risk decreases because you've locked in the price. You know, the cost is all in the capital cost of building the facility as opposed to any kind of variable cost for the energy. You know, the fuel, the fuel is free, the sun is free, the wind is free. And right now we're looking at gas prices that are at record heights <laughs> and really, really expensive. So if you have a portfolio that's built on renewables, you're not subject to the volatility of natural gas prices and other fossil fuel prices. It's not just that they're high, it's just that you're like, who on earth knows what they're going to do next? It's been crazy fluctuations the last few years and like a war came out of nowhere, like I did a podcast on this uh, a few months ago about how fossil fuel price volatility is such a big piece of inflation and how moving to renewable energy is deflationary because it's so much more stable and predictable. Right. So then let's talk about costs. It was a little mind-blowing for me, your conclusion that, as you say, even in the conservative economic case, getting to 99% 24-7 clean energy is just a 2% bump in costs from your existing portfolio. So two questions about that. One, I guess, just (laughs) how, how on earth, why is it so cheap? Did you expect it to be that cheap? And is it just, is the answer for why it's that cheap as simple as renewable energy is super cheap or is there something else going on here? So I'd love to hear why, why you think it's turned out to be that cheap. And then second, I'd like to talk a little bit about this sort of delta between 99 and 100 and like what how much cost jump and and what explains that weird you know you look at all the charts in your in your paper and like costs spike and the amount of excess supply spikes like everything spikes between 99 and 100 so i'd like to hear a little bit about that so yeah on the cost side we used costs based on rfos that we have done recently you know so these are actual pricing that we've received from developers bidding into our RFOs. It's just worth emphasizing here. This is not a matter of, sort of trying to project prices in the future. This is these are actual prices. 2025 we're talking about. So yeah. <laughs> we're working with existing market prices. Yeah. And it really is. It's because renewables are less expensive. Once you have contracted for those, you've locked in the price. So you reduce your risk and you're not subject to the, to the market volatility. So that's really... <laughs> Part of what it is is that it is less expensive for solar. We have seen um, storage prices, all prices over this last year have gone up a little bit just because of all the uncertainty in the market. Right. But once the market settles down, it is less expensive. And you, you lock in your price. It's just like if you put a solar system on your roof. You know, you know what the cost is, you lock in the price, and you have price certainty for a long time. So that's really a lot of what this is. 
And it's also handy, it seems to me, that you're in California, which means you have sort of existing geothermal resources available, which is another thing that's a little bit unique to California. And, you know, when I look at your chart, like how you're getting that nighttime power, that's wind and geothermal, basically. Wind and geothermal playing that sort of quasi-baseload role. Yeah, and we would love to have more geothermal. There's actually not a whole lot of geothermal available in the state. Uh-huh. Did you max out what you could what you could get? Well, the the model does a cost optimization and it selects resources based on the cost. And so, you know, if geothermal goes way up in price, the model's going to choose more solar plus storage. If geothermal goes down, and it's more competitive, then the model would choose more geothermal. But is there more geothermal to be had if it does choose more geothermal? I guess <laughs> what I'm Well, that's kind of about. a, that's a little bit of a challenge. Um, we wish there was more geothermal. There, there are some new projects being built. There's actually a, um, a regulatory requirement that all load-serving entities in the state procure a certain amount of what they're calling firm clean resources, which mm-hmm. is essentially geothermal. So because there is so much demand for geothermal right now in the, in the state, you know, we know in economics, if demand goes up, prices go up. If you have limited supply. <laughs> so that's funny. There's a lot of LSEs fighting over the existing geothermal. Yeah, the existing and the new geothermal. There is new geothermal being built. We've contracted for some new geothermal that's, some of it's being built in California, some of it's being built in Nevada. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it's out of state, then it needs to be able to import into California, which is a whole nother uh, challenge. <laughs> Well, another another you know recurring theme of this podcast is the is the sort of extraordinary promise of geothermal, of sort of enhanced geothermal, advanced geothermal. You know, maybe being able to get on something like the cost curves that the renewable energy is on, and it's just like you really can't overstate how helpful geothermal is to this particular project you're doing to twenty four seven clean energy having. Having it be firm and clean it really fills a nice role in these in these models. Right. Yeah. So the new geothermal technologies that are out there that don't need to rely on a resource like the geysers in Northern mm-hmm. California are definitely promising. And then there's also other technologies like hydrogen. So if you have a lot of excess solar, for example, you know, can you use that solar energy to split water to make hydrogen? And then use that in, you know, a converted natural gas plant, for example. Right. And I'm just assuming that that's not on the market yet. That's not cost effective yet. But um, again, that's that's a new technology that hopefully would be available in 10 years or something like that, which would be clean. Yeah. Another tool to make this easier. So let's talk about that delta between 99 and 100. Was that is that something that you all anticipated or was it kind of a, a little bit of a surprise? Like just the sort of, I guess, how flat it is out to 99 and then how steep it is from 99 to 100 both surprised me a little bit. So talk a little bit about that delta. Yeah, it was a little surprising. Well, I guess we didn't know. I mean, that's why we were doing this work, right? Because <laughs> everyone says, oh, you can't do that. You can't get to 100%. Right. I mean, we could. Um, it is a little bit more, more expensive and not outrageously more expensive. But, you know, the amount of resources we would need to procure to get to 100% and namely to cover those nighttime winter hours is interesting. So you're covering 99% of hours of the year. Yes. 
And I'm guessing that 1% of hours, those are winter nighttime hours. Right. Um, I don't know if you have our paper in front of you, but we provide a heat map showing the, the hours of the day, over the course of the year. And what we get to covering 99% of the hours is that the heat map is pretty much green for every hour of every day throughout the year and where we see it not green, which indicates that the carbon emissions are higher during certain hours are in the winter time, in the early morning hours between like midnight and 6 a.m. and then in the evening from like 9 p.m. to midnight. So during those nighttime hours. If you did cover those, how would you be covering those? Is it just buying more wind or is it buying more batteries? Like what, what could you theoretically do to cover those if, if costs were no constraint? Yeah, well, the, our modeling results show that if we were to go to 100%, we would procure a lot more solar and we would procure a lot more storage using that storage to store that solar, and we would procure more geothermal. Mm-hmm. And that just jacks up the cost of everything? Yeah. Well, you just have a lot more excess procurement right. by doing that. And so uh, the risk increases as well. But yeah, there's, there's more cost to buy all of those resources. So right now, our current portfolio, we have you know about just under 1,300 megawatts of capacity. To get to 99%, we'd add about another 600 megawatts of capacity. But to get to the 100%, we'd have to add yet again another 600 or so megawatts of capacity. Oh, wow. So just to serve those last few hours. Is this something the board has approved or is this like a proposal to the board? Like, hey, how about how about 99%? <laughs> I'm assuming nobody's going to bug you about that last 1%. Uh, no, the, the board is on board. <laughs> we, uh, we presented this, our preliminary findings in September to our board, and um, they agreed with the, the goal to go 99% hourly. You know, relative to short, your sort of baseline existing portfolio, is this a big greenhouse gas emissions accomplishment to get to 24-7? Yes, it is. Right now, when we report out on an annual basis, and we, we use the calculators that are out there now. Mm-hmm. We report that our, our emissions are five pounds CO2 per megawatt hour on an annual basis. But when we actually break this down on an hourly basis, and this is not how anyone reports, but on an right. hourly basis, our emissions are really 222 pounds CO2 per megawatt hour. That just speaks to the vast difference between the clean hours and the dirty hours, right? Right. So when we go to the 100% hourly or the 99% hourly, it's going to bring our emissions down to 26 pounds CO2 per megawatt hour. Mm. So it's by a order of magnitude. And so if we're doing that, if, it's, if we're able to reduce our emissions by that much, then that would be true for everyone as we try to do more hourly matching. And really what it does, it, it turns off the dirtiest power plants during the peak hours. Right. It's peak shaving, right? I mean, uh, you're basically using batteries instead of peaker plants. Right. For, for the most part. Right. And we're charging those batteries with renewable energy. Right. And then so when we discharge it, it's still the equivalent renewable energy. I thought it was interesting that even at the limit, you can't get to true zero greenhouse gases 
because of something having to do with geothermal, sort of trace emissions around geothermal? What's what's the deal there? Yeah, geothermal does have some carbon emissions, pretty low, but there are some carbon emissions due to geothermal, so that's why we don't get to zero. So if we had no geothermal, then we could get to zero. We also don't have any biomass in our mix, mm. mainly because our board made a decision early on that we wouldn't have any biomass in our mix because of other types of uh, pollutants from biomass facilities. Right. So if no geothermal, you could get to 100, but then you'd have to just sort of wildly over-procure yeah. wind and solar. It's interesting that the difference between sort of 100% offsetting clean energy, the sort of traditional way people are doing it, and your way of doing it is basically invisible given existing kind of reporting tools, given the way people currently report. And you have to squint down to that hourly level to sort of discover what is a fairly substantial difference in in emissions. Right. It's just like uh, looking at things in a microscope, I guess, or a more granular way. You discover some, some pretty big swings in emissions that you're eliminating. Yeah. But actually, things are moving in that direction. There was a bill passed in the California legislature this last year authored by our local state senator, Josh Becker, SB 1158, that is going to require load-serving entities in future years, and I think it starts in 2026, to start looking at their emissions um, on an hourly basis. Interesting. So it's not requiring that people publicly report that, but just to start taking a look at what's going on. And then, you know, it gives the state agencies time to get the tools together to help entities track their information that way. Right. Because you got to figure out hourly uh, recs to hourly renewable energy certificates, which is a whole other complicated thing that people should go back and listen to my old podcast about. (laughs) So there's a big win on greenhouse gas emissions, but also something I was also really keen to read about, it's really interesting, is what you're doing for the larger grid. So your your territory is embedded in a larger California grid, basically run by PG&E for the most part. Is what you're doing helping the larger grid? And, and if so, sort of like, how does that manifest? Yes, it does help the larger grid, which is um, PG&E is one of the transmission owners as a Southern California Edison, and it's operated by the California Independent System Operator. And it helps the grid in a few different ways. So right now we have in the summertime evenings, what they call the net peak demand. That's kind of the most challenging time to meet the state's load. Right. And this is when, just for listeners' benefit, this is when all the solar in California is starting to decline because the sun's going down, but it's still sort of relatively early in the evening. So demand is still going up. And when those two lines sort of cross, like there's a weird spike, there's a weird sort of ramp up in the evening. This is a, a known problem in, in California. Right. So what we find is that by matching on an hourly basis, we are able to help reduce the net peak demand. And our modeling shows that the hourly 99% does help reduce that somewhat. And some of the other things you talked about, the system ramp which is the need for gas resources essentially to quickly come online to mm-hmm. meet the increasing load or the increasing demand because the solar is going down and the load is going up. And those are the dirtiest gas plants uh, right. spending up to cover those hours. 
Right. So by having that those storage facilities available and inputting into the grid at that time the renewable energy that they store during the day, that helps to reduce the daily ramping needs and turns off some of those dirtiest gas resources. Mm-hmm. Shutting down peakers. That is really God's work there. That's like the first thing that needs to happen. Yeah. I think um, people who are more skeptical about renewable energy might look at this and say, okay, you've covered 2025, a single year, you've figured out how to get to 24-7 for a single year. But over the course of time, they might say, there will be seasons, maybe even whole years, where wind and solar are unusually low, right? It's sort of a dimmer than usual year or a less windy than usual year. And this is sort of why people say, like, you're going to need these giant seasonal storage options. Do you have any thoughts about that? I mean, are you worried in your little territory there about trying to model this out to 2050 or to the year 3000 or whatever? Like, do you think um, this is good enough to start with? Or do you feel confident, I guess, that you'll be able to hit 24-7, not just in 2025, but in every year under every circumstance? Yeah, I mean, in our internal modeling, we did look at other years, and um, we also did stochastic modeling. So this match model is what's called a deterministic model. You put in Mm -hmm. one set of inputs and you get one set of outputs. Of course, we did multiple, multiple (laughs) different sets of inputs and got multiple sets of outputs. But then when we found the best match, then we also put it into another stochastic model, which allows us to look at other variables and what is the worst case scenario and what if this happens and what if that happens, how, do, how are things going to look? So we are pretty confident that even if things change, if weather patterns change, if generation isn't occurring the way we expect it to, or if the load is doing something different than we expect it to, I think because we actually have so much excess capacity right. that that protects us in some sense. And um, we are expecting other technologies to come in. When we, when we look at resources, we also diversify our portfolio by having resources in different locations. So, yeah, if the solar is bad in Northern California, but we're getting some from Southern California or Arizona, or the wind isn't blowing in one location, it's likely blowing in another location, that uh, because you have a diverse portfolio of resources, if something happens in one place, it's not going to affect your entire portfolio. Yeah, that's interesting. I just, uh, you know, I was so excited to see your paper because this is 24-7. This is showing that 24-7 is A, reachable today, but B, not that much more expensive today. And it just seems to me that almost on every metric, it's going to get easier and cheaper, right? Like we've got all the got demand side stuff coming. you got better geothermal coming. You got long duration storage coming. There's just a million different kind of tools that are coming that are going to make this job easier. And so if it's starting, you know, in today's circumstances, barely more expensive than the status quo, then it's just like smooth sailing ahead, it seems like to me. Although I guess, you know, if you're in California, (laughs) I'm not sure about for everyone else. It'll come more slowly to everyone else, let's say. Yeah, well, we'd be happy to work with entities outside of the state anywhere to um, look at the model and help them figure out how it works for them and see how it might um, pan out. But one other thing, if I could say about the costs, you know, we serve retail customers 
And since we started in 2016, our rates have been 5% below PG&E's for generation services. Mm. So we've been saving our customers money since the beginning, delivering a superior product at a less cost. And so since we're already 5% less, even if our costs go up 2%, we can still be less expensive than their alternative, which is PG&E. And, you know, to me, and I've been in this industry for a few decades, <laughs> the thing we need to do to move the world and to have a sustainable future is to have renewable energy be less expensive. So it's a no-brainer. People just say, yes, mm-hmm. you know, everyone's interested in saving money. And even those who may be skeptics, they're going to be okay with having renewable energy if it's less expensive and it's reliable. <laughs> so that's really what's to me, really exciting about this is that we can get to cleaner energy for everyone and it can be less expensive for everyone. So that's where we need to go. So this brings me to my final question, which is once 2025 rolls around and you, you know, as a CCA are providing 99% clean energy 24-7 at a cheaper rate than PG&E, what's Next, like, <laughs> what's what's left to do? What's your uh, do, you, do you have further goals for the for the CCA beyond this? Well, we want to have that clean electricity used for other uses that are still producing greenhouse gases, namely transportation and buildings. Mm. So let's convert those cars that are burning gasoline to using this clean electricity. Let's convert those homes that are burning natural gas for their space heating and their water heating and their cooking to use electricity so that we can clean up everything. And that it's not just here in San Mateo County where we're based, but that others are doing it as well, because that's really where we need to go. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you for coming on today. And thank you for being the first to kind of stick your neck out and and attempting to do this 24-7 thing in the real world. It seems incredibly promising. So I hope this sort of like prompts other entities to you know, sort of steal themselves and and, and believe that they can do this uh, without breaking the bank. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This has been lots of fun talking to you. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.